Hello, my name is Mike Diedrich, and uh, I'm a vice president of Chapter 92 here in Seattle, Veterans for Peace. And this is the uh, Veterans for Peace radio show, which is broadcast on KODX 96.9. The videos or the, uh, the uh, audios is also saved on our, our VFP92.org uh, website, which is a Veterans for Peace organ. So today I'm uh, uh, honored to finally get uh, to be able to talk about the Japanese internment or the Japanese concentration camps, as you will. With us is Robert Chang. Uh, and Robert, you're a professor at the University of uh, Seattle University? Yes, at Seattle University School of Law. Okay. Well, he'll give a short introduction to his background. Cam and I are both fairly well known to the 92 viewers. So go ahead, Robert. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mike and Kem, for inviting me to uh, engage with, with you and, and uh, your audience. So uh, my name is Robert Chang. As, as Mike said, I'm a professor of law at Seattle University School of Law, where I also founded in 2009 the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality. And, uh, you know, in part, that's, that's the uh, experience uh, the fact that I, I work to advance Fred Korematsu's legacy. For those listeners who may not be familiar, uh, Fred Korematsu is one of uh, the young men who during World War II said no when he was told to evacuate the West Coast to go to a relocation uh, or assembly center before going to what we now call incarceration camps. I know, Mike, you said internment camp or concentration camp, but um, the, the preferred term these days among, among many Japanese Americans uh, is incarceration. In some ways to uh, say that, well, this isn't really internment. Internment means something else. Incarceration to highlight that uh, the people in there were behind barbed wire uh, and there were guards in watchtowers with, with rifles, uh, ensuring that they would stay uh, in those places. I think, Mike, you wanted me to say a little bit about my, my background. So I was born in Korea, uh, and I say Korea rather than South Korea, because uh, the South and North was created by the, the superpowers, um, the imperial adventures overseas that created this artificial divide and, and leaves us now with, with the, the mess uh, with, with uh, the, the leader of, of North Korea. Um, and then also in terms of um, yeah, so let, let me just stop there uh, in terms of uh, my brief introduction. Okay, Cam uh, uh, has uh, offered to act as sort of moderator uh, for this program. So go ahead, Cam. Yes, um, I would like to share uh, a few comments about my uh, how I learned about the Japanese internment camps. Uh, it was a little different from uh, most folks uh, and uh, came to understand that uh, how this was a really shameful episode in our American history. And uh, this was a time when all the Japanese um, uh, people of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast of the United States in the early stages of World War II were rounded up and uh, placed in incarceration camps uh, that were hastily built for that purpose uh, all over uh, in various places throughout the West. There's well over 100,000 folks were uh, uh, were were treated this way, and it didn't matter whether they were American citizens or not. Um, I was born in 1946, and um, in the normal course of events, I probably wouldn't even have heard about this because this whole tawdry episode was uh, 
pretty much swept under the carpet. And I don't think the newspapers covered it. I certainly didn't learn about it in American history classes. But I happen to know about it for, for uh, this reason. My grandfather was actually uh, an administrator at one of those camps. He was an administrator at um, the Topaz and in, um, internment in, in camp in um, southern Utah. So, and I was growing up, he talked about it a few times and uh, uh, my grandmother uh, worked there too. And she talked about it occasionally. Uh, my father uh, enlisted in the Navy uh, the day after Pearl Harbor. And uh, uh, so it was an item of conversation in our household and raised in that environment. I just assumed that uh, this was a necessary thing that happened to happen for our national security. And I didn't think much of it. Well, it was only in as an adult that I started hearing more and uh, the, uh, the news media and uh, started to focus on this. And, uh, and uh, I became aware that uh, things are not as I thought they were. And the more I found out about it, the, uh, the more I realized what, how shameful this was. Uh, I, um, I, I learned that uh, there was, for example, that there was a stark disparity between how the Japanese uh, uh, people were treated in our country uh, uh, versus those um, uh, folks of uh, German and Italian ancestry, which were also our enemies during World War II. And uh, it was totally different. There was no comparison on how they were treated. I learned that um, our own intelligence branch, our military and our FBI had done um, uh, investigations early on, even before the war, and determined that the, the Japanese uh, community in America did not pose any national security threat to our country. There was no justification for this sort of action from that perspective whatsoever. Uh, and basically everywhere I looked, uh, it, 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 it smacked of institutional racism because every branch of our government um, let the community down. The um, executive branch through the uh, policies they enacted, uh, the congressional branch through laws that they passed, and even in the halls of justice, where one would hope that uh, folks that were um, whose rights, constitutional rights were violated would get their day in court and get vindicated, uh, there, there was no uh, recourse uh, there at all as well. And it was just decades and decades later before uh, the, these rights were starting to be addressed and, and uh uh, and, and, and an acknowledgement was made that this was all wrong. So uh, then what I did more recently is I visited um, uh, the internment sites uh, and a couple of the museums that uh, recorded this occasion. I went to the actual site in Topaz, Utah, where my grandfather used to work. And I went to Minidoka uh, and, um, in California and um, uh, Utah, there are museums to document this experience. And what I learned was that to add insult to ind industry, uh, to in insult to injury, the tawdry way in which the, the Japanese folks were treated. They were rounded up and, and billeted in horse stalls uh, at racetracks uh, while these prisons were hastily built. And they, they were in the most desolate, godforsaken places you can imagine in the West. Uh, the barracks uh, in these internment camps were little more than large wood shacks. Um, they didn't have adequate insulation uh, to protect from the cold. Um, they, they, didn't, uh, they weren't sealed up enough to keep the dust and dirt out during the dust storms in the summer. And there's very little privacy and, uh, and uh, hardly even any furniture. The, the folks that were there had to basically build their own out of scrap wood. Uh, quite uh, and uh, so it was just just really shameful and and then the end of the experience um 
no one really cared about protecting their property rights. So a lot of them came back to nothing. They lost everything because they had no way of protecting their houses and other things. So um, I know that this uh, experiment, uh, this Japanese internment camp experience was not just an obscure footnote in history. And that's why I'm so glad that Professor Chang is here today so that we, he can explain to us and take a close look at what happened here. And so we have a better understanding of how our country got to this place and how that relates to today, today's uh, quest for social justice. So uh, I'm just uh, really looking forward to hearing his uh, perspective on this uh, whole episode in our American history. Before Professor uh, starts, let me just give a short anecdote to what you've been talking about. I grew up in Klamath Falls, about 40 miles north of Tule Lake, which was one of the largest internment camps uh, period. And uh, I didn't learn about this really until I moved away from Klamath Falls, despite the fact that, you know, we had, uh, I was born in 44, I lived there in, in Klamath Falls starting in 1946, 47. I didn't learn about this at all until I went away to school. I learned it when I was in, uh, I got a history degree at the University of Washington. And I followed up and learned more about this. But I mean, um, it was not something that if the people who were in my area, Klamath Falls, knew about this, they didn't say anything to me when I was growing up. And I went to a fairly good school too, a uh, Catholic school with, with good educators, but it, it wasn't something anybody talked about that I recall. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Professor Chang. Thank you. So, uh, you know, the, the two of you have done far more to educate yourselves uh, on this than, than, than most people. And, you know, I think part of it is the way that uh, often, at least in terms of the way U.S. history and government is taught in our, our schools, you know, primary schools, K to 12, um, often the, the shameful incidents are, are, are papered over or, or just simply not taught. Um, you know, there's, there's this wonderful book um, I think it's by the historian James Lovin. I think he also uh, is, is, is a lawyer, but Bending History in the Name of Patriotism, or, or maybe it's an article uh, that I read, that in some ways that if we acknowledge the times when we have fallen short, that somehow that endangers the kind of patriotism that we need to engender in our young people, uh, because we need that kind of patriotism so that they will go off and, and fight in our wars. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I so much respect uh, the military service uh, that the two of you have have uh, have done, and then the moral authority that you have when you speak out against uh, war, when you speak for peace, when you speak against racism. And so, you know, like wow, there, there, there's so much to unpack in, in, in both of your 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 uh, narratives. Um, so I think one of the things uh, I think that Ken wanted me to talk a little bit about is, well, how did something like the Japanese incarceration happen in the first place? You know, why did we fall short? Why were they singled out when other enemies of the, you know, potential enemies, right? And, and I, if, if, if we were live, you know, you could see me do the air or scare quotes around, around enemies. But um, why were German Americans and Italian Americans not treated in the same way? What was special or exceptional about Japanese Americans? And then the, here's the other thing that I want to point out, the word magic that took place. So in the uh, curfew and evacuation orders, the military orders that, that came down, um, 
the way that they they talked about people of Japanese ancestry, they said aliens and non-aliens. And so you may wonder, right? Well, what is a non-alien? And the answer is, well, non-aliens are citizens. Um, but they didn't want to say American citizens were subject to these orders. And so they said aliens and non-aliens of Japanese ancestry. And so the way we use words can be very powerful that creates people as being an other, which then operates to dehumanize them and then also allows us to treat them differently with disregard um, to impose, you know, as, as, as Ken was talking, the initial places that, that many of the the, the Japanese Americans who were evacuated. And that was the other sort of term that was used. They were evacuated uh, to these assembly centers. They were often on state fairgrounds because, you know, those are, there's a lot of space there. And they were put in horse stalls uh, because that's what was available while uh, the, the more permanent camps uh, were being built. But again, how do we get to this point? How do we get to treating people of Japanese ancestry in this way? Uh, it really goes back to the history of discrimination against people of Asian ancestry. Um, and so when Chinese people came uh, to California in large numbers uh, after uh, gold was discovered, uh, immediately um, they were subjected to violence and discrimination. So private violence, uh, and also discrimination in terms of discriminatory taxes and other laws. Uh, they weren't permitted to testify against white people who maybe committed violence against them. So the California Supreme Court in 1854 um, overturned the conviction of George Hall, a white man who had, who had killed Ling Sing, a Chinese immigrant. And it was because testimony from Chinese witnesses had been admitted. Uh, they said, well, that wasn't uh, permissible against a white person, which, so you have law operating to allow violence, private violence to operate against people of Chinese ancestry, um, which, which then uh, sort of opened the floodgates uh, in terms of extra legal violence. You have that followed by formal Chinese exclusion in 1882. Well, we don't want them in our country. Uh, you have the Supreme Court then upholding those sets of laws. You have that then extending to people of Japanese ancestry, where the, you know, Teddy Roosevelt in 1907-1908 did the so-called gentleman's agreement and said, well, Japan can no longer issue uh, visas for Japanese laborers that come to the country. You have then the 1917 Asiatic Barred Zone Act, which then is done to keep people of Asian, South Asian ancestry from coming into this country. And then after that, Filipinos are excluded through the 1934 Tidings-McDuffie Act. I'm going through this really quickly, but in a summary form, in part because um, you have the commonality of treatment of people of Asian ancestry. And in particular, there is a story about Japanese Americans in this, including in 1922, uh, Takao Ozawa, who tried to become naturalized, uh, was rejected by the courts and by the US Supreme Court. And so you keep people from this country. For those who are in this country, you subject them to discrimination and private violence. You pass laws that exclude them, for example, from owning farmland or being in certain professions or being lawyers. Um, and through that, you create an other. 
and by creating an other, you keep them distant. And then you wonder, well, why aren't they assimilating at the same rates as other immigrant groups? And because they aren't perhaps assimilating at the same rates, you then say, well, that's why you can't trust them. That's why we need to put them into camps. We don't know about them. Like, and because we don't know about them, we fear them. And so uh, in just really some reform, and I'm happy to go into more detail uh, as, as you may, may ask, but uh, let me just stop there as sort of uh, the backdrop to where we found ourselves uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Well, um, the, uh, the, there's several things that uh, come to mind when, you, uh, when I heard your comments here, is that um, first of all, um, with all the um, activity going on in the, um, on the West Coast uh, and all the hysteria regarding uh, the, the early onset of the war, um, there, there was some people were saying that, well, the Japanese people, um, the, the Japanese Americans can't be trusted because uh, they did not, uh, they're not part of our community. They're not really part of us. They keep uh, their own separate ways. And it's so ironic that the reason that was that way was they weren't allowed to be, to be part of our community. They weren't allowed to become American citizens. Uh, they didn't have uh, the same access to educations. Um, they, uh, uh, job-wise, I understand even before the war started, a lot of Japanese uh, people who had jobs were fired from their jobs because, uh, well, uh, all the stuff going on in in, um, uh, in the Pacific War Theater, that that causes uh, us to not trust you and we don't want you working here anymore. So the, uh, the, the whole idea that they were a, a separate group which might potentially cause a fifth column movement in, uh, and um, create all kinds of havoc for national security was basically um, they were put there by other forces that were beyond their control. The other thing I found totally ironic when I looked into this, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Bob, but um, I understand the, the total arbitrariness of how the Japanese uh, citizens uh, uh, in, our, in, in America and the Japanese Americans were treated depending on where they lived. Uh, on the West Coast, it was like they were the in the, the right numbers to cause a lot of trouble. So we have to detain all those and, and put them in these incarceration camps. On the East Coast, there weren't so many uh, 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 folks of Japanese ancestry. So they're probably no threat. We don't have to worry about them. But over in Hawaii, there were so many Japanese people that were productive parts of the community that, well, we can't incarcerate them because we won't have enough people to uh, to fill all our jobs and it would hobble our war efforts. So we're not gonna incarcerate them either. The, the, the crass arbitrariness of it was just so patently ridiculous. And uh, I wonder if you could comment on that. There were, there were actually sort of accept, exceptions to this sort of general rule that happened one of them were, uh, at least as far as citizens' reaction to the order, and that was in Bainbridge Island, where a uh, number of the people who lived there had the Japanese farms mostly were integrated into the community, and they they received they were they were interned, of course, but the citizens, many of the citizens lived there, preserved their farm their farms, which were sort of uh, shepherded along after they were 
in, in the camps and actually were made available to them when they returned. So, what's, what's sad, of course, is that um, that was more the exception uh, than, than the rule. I mean, sure, there were certainly um, Japanese Americans who were able to find um, others in the community um, who held their farms in trust for them during that period and they restored uh, their property to them later. But there were certainly the, the more common story was actually that Japanese Americans had to liquidate um, everything that they had. And often uh, it was at, at severely discounted uh, prices. Um, you know, it's funny, Cam, uh, you mentioned the, the arbitrariness of it. So I, I had the good fortune of being able to visit uh, the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles uh, last week. And one story that the docent uh, told us, um, and it's one that I was familiar with, but he, he, he added a little bit more detail. Um, if I remember his, his, his account, he talked about how in Hawaii, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was an initial period where I believe that Japanese, people of Japanese ancestry, so these are, you know, include aliens, right? And, and they're aliens because they couldn't become naturalized even if they wanted to, but also citizens who were born on U.S. territory. Um, my understanding is that they were not permitted to leave their homes and I think Monday morning rolled around and or Tuesday morning, like early in the week, and nothing was running and nothing was running because, you know, like there were no people to pump the gas. There were no people to like provide all the basic services because they were integral uh, to uh, the running of the economy. And so, you know, the place where there was the greatest um, percentage of Japanese Americans and and where the and, and the one place that was actually bombed and the one place where you know arguably the the whole fifth uh column kind of argument might uh, be strongest um is where they realized we can't do that to them uh, and so this idea that and it, there were certainly japanese americans who were um incarcerated but it was based on whether justified or not uh, individualized suspicion. And so if there's, if it shows in some ways that it's possible for them to have engaged in individualized determinations, but they just decided to forego it on the West Coast. And Kev, earlier you mentioned, you know, over, over 110,000 uh, were, were incarcerated. Um, the number now that I understand it is now 120, more than 125,000. And so what happens is that there were 10 primary war relocation authority camps, and these are the most commonly known ones, and, and these are the places uh, that were the most populous. But I know the 125,000 figure because the Japanese American National Museum has created a special exhibit, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's the IREI I -R -E -I -I exhibit, and a researcher has and, and, and they've done it in a physical form. There is a physical book where all of the names of Japanese Americans who were incarcerated in the entire United States, their names are listed in that book. And so in addition to the 10 primary camps, my understanding is that there were over 75 other locations where Japanese Americans were taken and incarcerated. And so then when you add all of those up, it's over 125,000. Yes, I would, uh, I'd like to, uh, I would love it uh, if you would share some 
comments about the Fred Korematsu Center and uh, its importance and relevance today, uh, because as I think we're all aware that this was not a, an isolated uh, footnote in history. It's uh, part of a pattern that we're still struggling with it today. Just a second, I've got to. And what we, um, the reason uh, Fred Korematsu has been uh, of very special interest to me because one, it's a, a very compelling story in its own right. Uh, uh, he, um, he refused to uh, be, uh, to submit to uh, the incarceration. He went into hiding, uh, he was apprehended and uh, ended up uh, uh, pleaded his case in Supreme Court and failed, was no, not vindicated until decades later. And then he was sent to a, um, one of these incarceration camps. This incarceration camp he was sent to was in Topaz, Utah, the same, very same place where my grandfather worked. And uh, uh, so that kind of touched me personally to know that. And, uh, you know, it's not a part of my family heritage that I'm proud of, but uh, rather than try to hide it, I think it's uh, best to be honest and talk about it and uh, learn what we can from it. But the, uh, the Fred Korematsu Center, uh, is uh, doing very important work that is uh, relevant to this discussion today. And I'd be very interested in uh, knowing more about that, uh, that uh, your organization and how it relates to this object, the subject matter we're talking about here. Sure. So I have the good fortune of being uh, entrusted by the Korematsu family to advance Fred's legacy. Um, and you're exactly right that Fred was one of the people who said no. Now, there are four, there are four people um, whose cases went up to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1943 and 1944. And I, I wanna say a little bit about, about those cases and the other, other people. And so um, when the first curfew order came down, um, Minoru Yasui uh, in Portland, Oregon was an Oregon-educated lawyer. Uh, he had gone to the University of Oregon School of Law, and he was an attorney. He thought that it was discriminatory, and he was uh, he he wanted to bring a test case to challenge uh, this discriminatory curfew order. So he walked around the streets of Portland uh, trying to get arrested. A police officer at one point told him, "You're going to get in trouble. Go home." And so then he presented himself to the police station, where the sergeant there apparently was very pleased and happy to. Uh, lock him up uh, for violation of the curfew order. And he took his case up. Uh, Gordon Hirabayashi in the Seattle area was a student at the University of Washington. Uh, and he said no to the curfew and also to the evacuation. Um, and in part, I think this was uh, motivated by the, the Quaker community uh, that in some ways embraced him and tried to shelter him uh, during, during this period. Uh, and then there was Fred. Uh, who was a young welder uh, in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. And you're right, he said no to the evacuation order and tried to hide from, from authorities, uh, but then was uh, apprehended. Um, these three men are, are the ones whose cases, who, who are, whose names are, are usually more well known, but there's a young woman with Sui Endo, and I wanna make sure that we spend some time to talk about her, especially because she ends up being ignored, often with her case not being included in con law casebooks. So not really taught uh, in terms of, of, of you know, constitutional law in, in law schools. But Misui Endo was a worker in the California DMV. And after Pearl Harbor, the California state government fired all the Japanese American workers in California civil service. 
Now, her she took a courageous stance, and she actually joined with a group of others to challenge her discriminatory firing. This got disrupted by uh, the evacuation order, and she ended up being incarcerated. The attorney who was assisting her in her challenge to California firing her asked her if she wanted to challenge her incarceration, and she said yes, and she did it through an, another means. Um, and so I think because the government was was worried about what what the outcome of her case might be, they actually offered her a deal. They said, we'll let you and your family go if you drop your case, but you have to like you can't return to the West Coast. You have to go east. And she said no. She wanted to challenge her incarceration because she knew that it was inappropriate. So all four of these people recognized the discrimination and took courageous stances. Now, uh, Gordon and uh, uh, Min's cases were decided just on curfew. And so in some ways, those cases are thought to be less constitutionally important because the civil liberty being infringed was I mean, it's serious, but it's more minor. It's curfew. You have to, you have to, you can't be in public after a certain period of time or during certain hours. Whereas Fred's case challenged at least the evacuation, being forced to leave his home. Now, Fred was also trying to challenge the incarceration, but the U.S. Supreme Court didn't want to reach the legality of incarceration, so they just dealt with the evacuation order, and so. Um, the example that those four um, provided by standing up and saying no, in a lot of ways, is what we try to honor and advance, including the possibility of an importance of protecting when ordinary people recognize injustice and say no. And so that's part of what motivates us uh, in some ways to do our work. But I also wanna highlight that there were many others who said no. And so there was a loyalty questionnaire administered to people in the camps. And these are the so-called questions 27 and 28. Question 27 required that you forswear allegiance to the Japanese emperor. The question number 28 was, uh, and would you then be willing to serve uh, this country, including in, in military services, in the military service? Now, there are a number of people who thought question 27 was a trap because if you forswear allegiance, what that requires you to do in some ways is to acknowledge that you had allegiance in the first place. And so people were really concerned about that question. And question number 28, there were a number of people men and young men and women who said no to that, but also tried to include a caveat. If you treat us fairly, we would be more than willing and happy to go serve in, in you know, our country. But because you are discriminating against us, uh, we are not able to answer yes at this moment. And the troublemakers, many of them ended up at the camp where, near, uh, where you lived, Mike, uh, Tule Lake. Uh, and then there were also a number of others who were active draft resistors. And so I want to uh, you know, point out that the draft resistors were um, putting forward their own vision of patriotism. And it was a response to the discrimination. And it was trying to make our country better, right? The equality uh, in some ways that the U.S. government was saying that it was fighting for uh, 
in Europe against the racism, the anti-Semitism of, of the Nazi regime. And so I realize I haven't gotten to what we do yet, but I've spoken for a while. So let me pause for a moment and, and then maybe maybe I'll return to what we do, which helps maybe to draw some of the more uh, direct connections. Uh, just a quick note on what you just said about draft resistors. Now, these were actually people who were in the camps and were drafted out of the camps and asked, uh, drafted into the United States military. And some of them said no. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And there was a mass trial. I'm trying to remember. Um, it might have been in Wyoming. A mass trial of over 100 of them. Uh, and and, and uh, I think the scholar Eric Mueller at the University of North Carolina School of Law has, has written about that. Now, you know, one of the things that happened after the bombing of Pearl Harbor is that initially people of Japanese ancestry already in the military were, were discharged. And then the U.S. government realized, gosh, maybe that was not the smartest thing to do, especially because they realized, oh, maybe we need those who might be fluent in the Japanese language uh, to assist us in the Pacific theater. And so then they changed course and then they decided to make military service uh, open for those of uh, who were Japanese American citizens. Many volunteered, but others were drafted. Uh, and so... Mike, in terms of the, the draft resistors, they were actually drafted. They were in the camps and they're drafted. And you can imagine the disconnect uh, that they might be feeling. Like you want us to serve our country and they regarded it as our country. You want us to serve our country, but you have us here in our camps. You have our families in the camps. Uh, and Despite that, um, you know, there's the 100th Battalion uh, out of Hawaii, the 442nd, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, they, they have a, a very um, honorable uh, record of, of service, including uh, like the most Purple Hearts per, per capita and, and, and things like that. So it's quite probable that you, you know more about the 100th and the 442nd in, in their record. So let, let me stop there. Yes, they were, they were one of the most, if not the most uh, highly decorated unit in World War II and uh, served uh, bravely and helped uh, bring uh, World War II to an end. Uh, and, you know, that, that force where allegiance question, you're absolutely right. What, what a strange question that is because uh, what in the, what's, implied there is that you're not only would you forswear allegiance uh, to uh, the Japanese emperor, but it, but you're, it means you're swearing allegiance to this country, but you couldn't even become citizens if you were not a, uh, if, if you're not an, a born in the United States, uh, you cannot be naturalized because you were forbidden um, uh, to use that process. That wasn't corrected for many years. Uh, and then uh, till, and then it was just a token number of people till 1965 when the quotas were dropped, I understand. So the, these, the discriminatory patterns continued for a long time. Uh, but um, the, uh, an example of, uh, that comes to mind now is uh, for me now, it's the Kubota family. Um, we all, most of us know about this wonderful gardens that the Kubota family was uh, uh, created, um, oh, many, many decades ago before the war. And uh, when the war came along, the Kubota family who had these beautiful gardens that the public was uh, really, um, it, it, it was loved going to, was they were all detained and sent to Minidoka. And uh, they had a few uh, friends uh, in the Seattle community who were 
caretakers and they they kept the the place from completely falling down in the sears but needless to say when the war was over they uh uh came back to a garden that was in in shambles and somehow the family uh, uh mustered up enough of support and found a way and some financial support to get the garden going again it's a beautiful heritage for seattle now but i went to minidoka and uh irony of ironies there is a victory garden there it was a beautiful V-shaped victory garden. The grounds were that was designed by Mr. Kubota, who's a master gardener. And um, on the uh, there's a plaque that shows uh, all of the uh, folks uh, from that Minidoka um, internment camp that um, of young men who volunteered or were drafted and served in World War II. And two of the Kubota family members are on that plaque as well. And uh, just the idea that they would be basically incarcerated here and uh, told that the country does not want them, does not trust them, that we have to keep you separate uh, and uh, because uh, we, we, they can't address, but, but oh, now we want you to come help win the battle. I can't imagine what, um, what cognitive dissonance that must have been for them. And the fact that they rallied, many of them rallied and served uh, bravely is just uh, an amazing testament to uh, uh, the commitment of uh, the Japanese community to be, uh, to, to be part of the American experiment, to be part of the American uh, dream of uh, being uh, accepted as full-fledged members in our community. So, you know, the struggle goes on and um, I'm, um, um, uh, I'm, I'm glad that the Fred Korematsu Center is there. I'm glad that the internment camps, um, some of them have been preserved inside. I'm glad the museums are there because this is an important part of our American history that we cannot shuffle it under the carpet because the whole idea is that if you observe history, if you study the history, if you protect, uh, if you record what happened then, uh, you can learn from it and you can decrease the chance that something like that would ever happen again. And uh, I think that's at the core of what the Kuramatsu Center's mission is too. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, you know, one of the things you, when you, when you opened the, the show, you, you talked about how um, the, 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 sort of stories about uh, national security uh, told during that time, the fifth column, uh, that those turned out to be to be lies, right? Mm -hmm. And so many of these were put forward by Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who was the military leader initially uh, of the, the territory, you know, the, 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 along the coast of, of uh, along the West Coast. Um, but these didn't come about, like we didn't learn the, the full scope of the, the uh, erasure, uh, the lies until Fred's case and the cases of the other two uh, Japanese American men uh, came back up in the 1980s. And this was because uh, Peter Irons and Yoshiko, oh, I'm sorry, Aiko Yoshiko Hertz, Hertz, sorry, I, I, I I have, I'm, I'm botching her name, but uh, they discovered in, in the National Archives uh, evidence that the Justice of, De of Department had lied to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, had hidden evidence that there was no sabotage, that there were no communications, illicit communications, um, that they had this evidence and they suppressed it. Uh, did not present it to the U.S. Supreme Court, which then allowed the U.S. Supreme Court to just say, oh, national security, you know, this is what we do in times of war. And this is unfortunate, maybe, but but we have to, to do this. Now, one of the great things about 
uh, Fred and, and the others is what they did after this, and especially uh, for Fred after 9-11. Uh, he became a very strong advocate um, when he saw that Arab Americans uh, and uh, Muslim Americans were being mistreated following 9-11 and trying to, to put forward the message that we need to stop repeating history. And that's one of the things that we've tried to carry forward, the need to stop repeating history. And so we became, you know, we've been active in this space, but in one instance, following uh, the first executive order uh, in, in 2017, the travel ban, uh, sometimes called the Muslim travel ban, um, that really seemed to be, or to carry the echoes of, um, what occurred to uh, Japanese Americans uh, during World War II. And so we made a, a, a big effort to be active in the litigation around the country, uh, reminding people of the earlier history, uh, the treatment of uh, people of Asian ancestry leading up to uh, the Japanese American incarceration as, as, as ways to, to, to try to check ourselves um, from the, the worst that we sometimes do in the name of national security. Wasn't there also an issue with the uh, Trump order to segregate uh, people from uh, Mexico, mostly at uh, segregate the children uh, from their parents, which was an issue that I think the Japanese uh, uh, community resonated with them in their own history? Oh, exactly. Um, you know, Japanese Americans uh, were very active in fighting against family formation. Um, you know, there's a, there's an organization that I learned of um, last week. I think it's it's Suru T S U R U for solidarity, and it's a group of Japanese Americans who have been very active. Uh, with regard to the discrimination at the border, but especially with regard to the treatment of, of children. Um, you know, the treatment of children is, is another fascinating episode from World War II. And there was actually an orphanage in the Manzanar camp, the children's orphanage. And what they filled that orphanage with was children that they collected. So children of Japanese American ancestry that they collected from orphanages along the West Coast, including people who may have been like one fourth or one eighth Japanese by ancestry, right? Hmm. Including in one example, a child who was blonde and blue eyed, but um, who was apparently thought to be a threat. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the more extreme examples. Um, and I, my understanding is that there might have been a group of researchers at Cal State Northridge uh, who engaged in an oral history project. I haven't had a chance to, to revisit this, but um, I hope that they did collect uh, their stories because that's another uh, remarkable one. You know, um, I reviewed some of the, the um, information you gave me, um, uh, visuals that you used to support the um, your discussions of the subject. And I was really struck by the, um, uh, when you noted that there seems to be uh, a double line of cases um, so that the, um, in American jurisprudence, uh, if the Supreme Court or any court is inclined to rule one way or the other, 
there seem to be a dual line of cases that they can kind of choose whichever way they want to go and find all kinds of legal citations for it. Uh, of course, one of the examples is uh, the one line of cases that says, going all the way back to Marbury versus Madison, that the you know interpretation of the law is solely the responsibility of the courts and the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of all of these matters. And then another line of cases saying, well, no, it's not our place to... Uh, rule on what the government does. All we can do is fill in the gaps where the law is silent. And depending on, on which outcome they want, they'll, they'll, they'll do that. And as recently as uh, one of the Trump decisions, uh, um, um, Justice Sotomayor pointed out that, you know, it's commendable that uh, the Korematsu decision has uh, been consigned to the dustbin of history by, uh, by events and is no longer regarded as authoritative law. And yet they seem to use similar um, the, the, the Supreme Court seems to use similar reasoning in coming to the decision they did. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, can, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, uh, you know, one of the sort of lessons that, that's often taught and celebrated in American civics is the role that the courts play, the critical role in assuring our democracy and our democratic traditions. And so, you know, what you described was, well, the courts are there to check the excesses of the executive and the legislature. So if they exceed, you know, the power that they have or act in a way that is inconsistent with our constitutional traditions, including equal protection and, and due process, that the courts are there to step in. But it's like there's this big asterisk or footnote to that, which is, oh, but not with regard to matters involving the border or national security. So there is an exceptionalism that operates. And in the context of immigration law, this is called the plenary power doctrine. Plenary power also operates in other ways. It also operates with regard to our colonies uh, that we still have and also operates with regard to certain aspects of the U.S. government's relationship with Indians and Indian tribes. And so what's what's fascinating, of course, is, gosh, plenary power seems to operate when we're talking about people of color, right, with very different histories. But isn't it interesting that when we're thinking about the power of the legislature and the executive, we say, oh, the courts will treat or and somewhat sometimes not even look at what they do because going back to the primary case um, that uh, legitimated uh, discrimination at the border with regard to with regard to persons of Chinese ancestry it's called Chechen Ping versus the United States uh, the court said what Congress decides if they decide that there are a people that we don't want in this country the determination by Congress is, is conclusive upon the judiciary. That means that they have no say there. That means that Congress can engage in discrimination and the judiciary will just say, well, that's for you to decide, not for us. And so they step out of it. And so we have this story that we're very proud of in terms of the role of the courts and American democracy. But then with regard to the border and national security, we say, oh, well, we do something uh, different there. And I think that is very dangerous um, and, and inconsistent with uh, the, the sort of the, the best things about our American democratic tradition. 
the regard for people and fair treatment and non-discrimination. But then we say, oh, well, if it's the border or national security, we'll make an exception and we'll Mm -hmm. let you uh, do more there. I agree. There's all kinds of uh, mischief and bad things can happen if you abuse that exception. Um, the other thing is, I, I, I think you would agree that one of the important things we need to do in situations like um, what we're talking about here, the Japanese incarceration camps, is we really have to understand our history. Uh, because uh, by to really understanding our history, we can really um, under, you know, we, we can get a better feeling for what went wrong there and moving forward to um, make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. But the problem we often have is we have so much fake history out there. And we deal with this all the time as Vietnam War veterans because uh, Mike and I have our own take of um, um, what the history of the Vietnam War was. And we were there and actually saw it happen. So I think we can speak with authority on, on some things we did. And we've done a great deal of research, but there's a one huge pile of history out there that's fake history that wants to sanitize what we did and and come up with uh, outcomes that uh, are not uh, accurate, historically accurate, and uh, seek to hide some of the blemishes and and bumps of, uh, and, uh, and, and that prevents us from learning the lessons we should learn in the Vietnam War. And uh, we got the 50th anniversary coming up. And uh, so it's a challenge for us to, uh, if we all agree that uh, history is important, even to agree on what that history is and to preserve what the real history is when someone else is trying to hide it. So one of the things I'm I'm most uh, worried about is the way that many states are now restricting the way that we talk about or learn about race um, in this country. And so, you know, sometimes these are are referred in shorthand as CRT or critical race theory bans. Um, You know, most recently in the news, uh, you might have seen that the the state of Florida has has banned uh, the AP African-American history course uh, that had been developed uh, with this idea in some ways that there are are, are dangerous concepts or or you can't talk about these things in this way. And, And my my fear is that when we obscure this history, um, we don't equip um, our children uh, to be able to understand and navigate the the complex world within which we we live uh, and to understand better the, not just your own experiences, but the experiences of others, uh, which I think is critical uh, in terms of us maintaining our vibrant pluralistic society. And that's actually one of the the sort of big cases that we got involved in. So from 2012 to 2018, I was co-counsel to high school students, Mexican-American high school students in Tucson, who challenged a state law that was used to terminate the Mexican-American studies program in the Tucson Unified School District. Now, you might wonder, like, what what is the Korematsu Center uh, in Seattle doing down in in Arizona? Well, part of it is that um, it's critical for us in terms of the way that we do our work, that um, we do work on behalf of of all. And for me, it was so shameful 
that Mexican-American school children were being told that their history and their stories did not belong in their classrooms. And for us to stand aside while this was going on was just something that, that we could not do. And so we got involved in that case. Um, and the law that was passed in 2010 has eerie similarities to a number of the laws that are being passed in, in other states that talk about certain banned concepts. And so, you know, one of the sort of dog whistle uh, things included in that provision, you can't include, you know, course, something in courses or classes that promote the overthrow of the U.S. government. And I call it a dog whistle because that was not in any way anything that was, was included in any of the courses. But by including it, you present to the public this danger or specter that, you know, subversive things are going on in these classrooms and these Mexican-American educators are, are engaging in this to, to, to subvert the, the youth um, that they, they get to teach. But then also things like um, prom promote resentment toward a group or class of people. It's like, what, what does that mean? Promote resentment toward a group or class of people. And so there's this hilarious bit on the John Stewart show. And this was actually, um, it was, it was a, it was a guest host who, who went down to Tucson and, and interviewed uh, educators, board members, and, and asked one of the board members, so how do you teach slavery or the history of slavery without possibly producing resentment? Um, and, and the person was, was not able to answer. I mean, it's, it becomes dangerous if, if this idea of, of that we need to sanitize history, um, which then um, erases or doesn't allow us to see things like the anti-Black racism that is occurring with regard to the policing of certain communities. So when we think about the killing of George Floyd, you know, is that about race? Where does race belong in that story? Or does it become a story where race just cannot be discussed because we live in a so-called colorblind society or country where it was a police officer who killed a man and where race doesn't become part of our understanding of what it is that took place. And so um, I just, you know, I can only imagine um, the 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 uh, trouble you feel when fake history about the Vietnam War is is put forward. Um, you know, I feel the same way about the erasure of history about race. Uh, the you know, uh, as part of this this nation's uh, history. Uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, the um, it's that I think that's one of the most important points. The other thing is is I mean, of course, the racism and race is part of American history. It's, it's a, you can't talk about American history without talking about race. And as far as that, people's sort of reaction to things that they find threatening, uh, I found that as a, as a Vietnam veteran, one of the hardest things that veterans and, and other people have is looking in the mirror and say, well, what is your own history? What did you do? What did you in the war? You have to sort of find some acceptance of that and uh, deal with that. And it's not an easy thing to do. I can speak as somebody who, who uh, who is an avid anti-war and peace and justice person, but for for most people to sort of look in the mirror and say, well, what is our country's history? And what is our history of slavery and racism and the way we treat our Indians? And of course, the way we treated our Japanese Americans. 
So I think that actually that we're going to have to have another show with your permission. There's a couple of issues that I think are important. One is the uh, divisions in the Japanese community uh, that sort of have been uh, part of the discussion for a very long time, particularly the Japanese American Citizens League and the no-no boys and their reaction to it. So uh, I would hope that you could be uh, part of a, another hour, 55 minutes of a show. Um, so could you give me some quick closing comments, if you will? We're we're gonna we're gonna go on with this. This is very important. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, and th thank you so much for for allowing me to to be on your show um, and to engage with with uh, your your audience. Um, I'd be thrilled to to return. I mean, you know, these there's there there certainly is so much to talk about. So, you know, one of the lessons um, that I hope you know, or, or takeaways uh, from, from our conversation today is that, you know, I expect that for many audience members, um, some of what we talked about, much of what we talked about might be new to, to you. Um, and um, that's okay. Uh, and what I would hope that you, you think about is that, you know, it's, it's a, it's something that I, I often come back to, and, and my mentor, the late Jerome McCursell Culp Jr., uh, said at an early uh, LACRIT, that's Critical Latino Latino Legal Theory Conference back in 1996, he asked the question, how do we come to participate in the struggles of those who are not us? How do we come to participate in the struggles of those who are not us? How do we develop the kind of solidarity where, where, where we have very, very different experiences. And for me, the, the lessons that I've taken away and that I try to transmit is, well, first, learn your own history, um, and then learn the history of others. Uh, and then once you become more knowledgeable about this history, and, and Mike, more aware in some ways of the blemishes that exist with regard to maybe our own actions, or the actions of our communities, the actions of our government, um, is to then say, well, what am I going to do with that? And at that point in time, it's, it's on you, uh, of course, because I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but I hope that when you do learn your history and the histories of others, that that might motivate you to do things maybe a little bit differently, to act in concert with others, in solidarity with others. So thank you, Professor Chang. And also thanks to Kim Hunter, who I've got the ball rolling on this. Sorry, I might add that I reached out to different Japanese organizations and it's really a, a plum to have you here and talk about this. So we'll do another show on this. So uh, Kim, thank you. And <coughs> thank you. This is Mike Diedrich, uh, uh, Veterans for Peace radio show, 90, uh, our broadcast on KODX 96.9 and also on vfp92.org. So thank you all.